Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. So hello, Global Marketing Show listeners. I am so glad you're joining us today for this conversation with Javier Ramo. He is an expert on employment around the world and extremely insightful on subtle histories that form different cultures. So welcome, Javier. Hi, Wendy. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, so... Tell me about um, your experience in international employment. You've worked in a bunch of different com- countries. Yeah, well, um, I originally come from Argentina, where I was born. I moved to the U.S. when I was uh, about 15 years old. And I always wanted to work internationally. So um, after I went to college, I started working for Texas Instruments, and I always angled to see if there was a way I could work internationally. And the first two years I did... Uh, Pro, uh, program management and things like that. And then I got into the international support office. And through that, through my boss in Germany, um, I, I told them that I was interested in being placed somewhere in the world. So lo and behold, um, I got a job with TI in Nice, France, which is not a bad place to be. Oh, that's so, a fabulous place to be. Yeah, that was my first experience. And it was very different because I did not go as an expat. I went in the local payroll. And so uh, they had to look at, I started getting exposed to the differences in there. You know, the salaries in the U.S. are one thing. Salaries in France are something else. I have different scales, different job grades, different things that I had to look at. And then I looked at the taxes, both what I paid and what the employer paid and the benefits I received. Um, one interesting tidbit, I was in France for about four years, and I will still be eligible for French retirement pay. It's going to be like 200 euros a month, not a lot, but hey, it's a nice meal every month at least. Right. But that was my first exposure. I worked there, then I came back to the Wait, U.S. so go ahead. And, and so you, you were comparing the French salary and taxes. How did that compare to the U.S.? At that time, French salaries were lower than U.S. Uh, salaries for my same job grade. And so um, I had an agreement with my boss and through the HR department where um, they would uh, initially pay me a base salary and then a commission that would decrease over time so it would be in parity with the rest. Um, and seemed to make sense because I just did my numbers and it looked like, you know, that rent was a little bit lower. Different things were different. We're not like in the U.S., but um, the most important thing is that I would be able to to live comfortably, you know, like I was living in the U.S. Uh, with that salary. And my wife and I didn't have children at the time, so we thought it was a great time for us to, to go and explore Europe and live in Europe for a while. Yeah. Um, The salary differences, uh, I think, over time have uh, equalized a little bit, um, particularly with Europe, with uh, the advent of the European market, uh, which, you know, the unification of the EU, that made it very different. Because even when I lived in in France, I noticed that I had people in England, in France, in Italy and Germany, and I noticed the subtle differences in, in salaries in the different places. Um, Germany was always higher, France was next, uh, Italy was next, and the UK for some reason was always lowest. I'm sure those things have equalized by now. And so when you were um, negotiating the salary and commission, then did were you looking at taxes too, or did a lot more come out in taxes? No, I didn't think about the taxes until later. I figured taxes are taxes, yes. um, which is one of the mistakes we always make. We don't realize that we have a totally different taxation system. Of course, we have different benefits. In France, uh, you know, the benefits were really good in terms of, you know, uh, they had, they've had universal health care forever. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, as I said, the retirement plan that I still, you know, I, I'm still able to get into it whenever I retire. Um, 
there lots of little things. The other thing that I found out is that it's almost, first of all, I had a ton of vacation or over there. I, I came from two, two weeks a month. I had, I remember four weeks a month and two weeks of congé d'affaires, which is a, a, a business vacation. I, I was never able to take all that vacation because... Wait a minute. So you had four weeks of personal vacation and then you had how much of business two weeks. vacation? Two weeks. Uh, the idea of those two uh, extra weeks is if you had to do any paperwork or if you had to go renew a card somewhere or do something that had to do with um, uh, business as opposed to time off for you to rest and uh, for rest and relaxation, you'd be able to take those days off. And so it was nice. I've never heard of that before. So you could say, I'm going to take one of my weeks and write my blogs. So you right. have to be working, but you're not in meetings. You're not accountable for anything else. You're just doing that. Or I need to fly home to fix my visa or whatever. Right. Uh, you had to have a reason. And they, uh, I mean, you didn't have to prove it or anything. Well, I never took all my vacation anyway, because I worked for an American company, still had a French boss, but I had a U.S. boss as well. So uh, they always wanted the things done at their own time. And uh, I remember one, uh, I had a group, we were doing a, a special project for a speech board at the time, a speech processing board. And I had a, a group of four uh, French engineers working with me. And they said, um, uh, you know, we were behind the project and August was coming around and we needed to del deliver by September 3rd. And uh, I told the guys, hey guys, we're going to have to postpone our vacation. So one of them called me aside and said, let's go outside and talk for a minute. He was a friend. And he said, Javier, this is France. August is vacation. When <laughs> September comes around, our project will still be there. TI will still be there and it will be much more relaxed and we'll finish it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay. Do you think that's equalized now too? Or do you think, I mean, I know August is still the big vacation month over in Europe, but it's, it, it's still, I, I mean, it still is that way. It's, uh, I think uh, one of the things that I always notice around the world in the United States, we usually live to work. We love work. We right. are, very much work focused. In most European countries and Latin American countries, we work to live and live as best as we can. So we make sure we have our time off. We make sure when we're over there that to, to enjoy the time off and get recharged. So you, you grew up in Argentina, but you went to college and started working in the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah. when I was 15, I, I moved with my family to Kansas City, Missouri of all places. Um, it was interesting and quite a shock to go from a city like Buenos Aires of about 10 million people to Kansas City, which I think at the time was one and a half million people. I loved it, though. The people in Kansas City are fantastic. So do you identify more as Argentinian or American on the work ethic? I think I got trained professionally in the U.S., so I have more of a... a I would say uh, an American or a U.S. work ethic. At the same time, I, that has changed as you go and grow and, and progress through different things. Uh, you learn to appreciate some of the best things in life. You don't, uh, while we work hard, I always try to make sure and plan so I, I can have my time off. So I do that. Okay. And that's, that may be uh, getting older and wiser too, is making sure to and, take and, and having, having children and grandchildren also helps too. So you yes, can have time does. with them. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. So you're over in France, you negotiate the salary and then realize the taxes are a lot higher, even though you get a lot more benefits. Right. Well, um, so you learn to live with that uh, and you start talking to your boss. And, and one of the things that I learned in life, everything's negotiable. Um, so after I was, uh, this extra bonus was supposed to expire after two years. So after six months, I was looking at that. And I, so I went to my boss and I said, hey, you know, we need to do something about this. So this guy was Italian. I mean, my bosses, I had a French boss and an Italian boss on top of him. So the, the Italian boss says, ah, we can fix anything. We'll fix it. So, so he did. And he just 
uh, froze a salary in there and said, oh, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. So um, I, I guess they wanted me there. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's the smart thing about working really hard for six months and then bringing it up. Right. So yeah. it's, but it's, um, I mean, the whole thing, the whole, one of the things that I always learn is that every, every country has its different personalities. Um, and there's different ways of working. You know, Italians uh, are very creative. They do all kinds of great things. They're excellent salespeople. They always sell you everything. Uh, the thing is, they're not very organized. They're, they get things done maybe at the last minute, but they get them done. And they say, ah, oh, let's go enjoy some coffee. Oh, let's go enjoy some grappa if it's in the evening or whatever. Uh, French are extremely creative as well. But they like to, they're very Cartesian. They like to program everything and know exactly where they're going and do things that way, uh, which sometimes uh, gets on the way for them. And, and I'm talking generalities, of course. Of course. It's, not, it's not the same thing. The English guys always make a great plan. And when it comes to execution, uh, they're not that great. The Germans, <laughs> their, plan, their plan is maybe a bunch of bullet points, but boy, is execution good. They're really good at that. And... If you want somebody to organize everything, just have the Swiss. They're great. <laughs> so it's fun. It's fun. Working in Europe was something amazing. Also, it was before the, the Iron Curtain had fallen and before the EU was fully formed. So it was really, really interesting. Uh, you could really see the differences in, in the different countries. So I, I totally enjoyed that. Right. And so were you there? When, when did you leave? Were you there when the curtain fell down, the wall came down? No, I was right before. I, well, actually, when the wall fell down, yes, but not when the EU, uh, you know, Europe 92 came on board. I, I was in there from 1984 through 1988. Okay. So, so it and you was, were in uh, Nice the whole time? You were, yeah, I was living in Nice. I traveled all over Europe, too, which was very nice. Oh, Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. And, and my wife would come along with me too. So <laughs> it was even better. Right, right. So then, and that wasn't even part of the two week of work vacation because that was just Not, part of work. That's right. Well, <laughs> we had, we go. always planned it so we can have the weekend in there, which was very nice. Right, right. So we like that a lot. So now you're working for a company. Well, talk to me first about how difficult it is for a company to hire employees in different countries. Well, um, after, I, uh, after TI, I went to work for Motorola. There was a joint project that they had together, and they asked me to go join them. Um, we were doing, of all things, online data way back in the early 90s before the World Wide Web actually existed. And um, it was really interesting. Uh, and fortunately, then the World Wide Web came around and um, there was no, there was, the only need was for a database. So um, I went, uh, I started looking inside Motorola and I found a job in cellular infrastructure. That's when I moved to Florida um, to work in the Latin America division to, uh, to develop, to sell new products in there and install them and all that. So we worked with a lot of the former landline uh, um, suppliers like Telefonica and the, the people who did the basic phone services. And um, we started winning business and we, are, we were winning business in countries where we were not set up. Uh, so we had to go and set up subsidiaries. Uh, we had to study the labor laws in those countries. We had to study uh, the tax laws, figure out you know, how would we make all this work. And it was very interesting, but at the time, I was more concerned about the technology of cellular infrastructure than, you know, what is the minimum salary, what are the vacations they have to have, uh, you know, how do taxes or is there a profit sharing or things like that, that, um, you know, most American companies make the mistake of thinking that whatever happens in the U.S., whatever we do in the U.S., will apply for everywhere. You know, and, and we forget that part when we're running businesses. We think, oh, it's, it's not that difficult. Why? Because mostly what we've been doing is to, taking what I used to call the parachute approach, which is you go there about once a month, you parachute in a country, try to do business, trying to get something and then leave. And you never establish in there. But once you start establishing, you find all these different things. So I did that at Motorola for a while. I also did that um, 
when I left Motorola for Samsung, when I got in the handset business, uh, we opened a lot of subsidiaries and did a lot of things like that. And um, then I, came, I formed my own company to do business development in Latin America mostly. And I came, um, I came to know a company that was actually providing uh, employment outsourcing services. I had no idea about what it was or how it would work. But we started talking and they offered me a job, say, hey, leave your consulting company or we want you to consult for us, but uh, we want you to do that full time. So um, what I did is I went to, um, you know, I studied what they were doing and sounded very interesting. And what they were offering is a, a thing called employer of record. An employer of record, basically, you're outsourcing, outsourcing the employment of workers in a country where you're not established but you do that according to the laws of that country. The nice thing about that is that you're able to do it with just identify the resource you want and you don't have to worry about, okay, what are the taxes that I have to pay? What are the employment laws? Uh, I don't have to hire an accountant or a lawyer or in some countries, if you establish a company, you have to have a country manager who has to be uh, the nationality of the country you're in. That's the case in Brazil, for example. Mm-hmm. and and things like that, that at the end add to your costs. And the worst thing about it is not so much opening that because opening is difficult, but it's doable. If you ever have to shut down a subsidiary, it's really a pain because there's a lot of liabilities and there's, there's rents that you did. You want to get the best uh, uh, office rent rate. When you, back then we didn't have the Regis or the, or the WeWorks that we have today, but um, you know, th- there were a lot of things that when you shut down a company, you have a lot of liabilities that you have to worry about, and you never plan for those. Or lo and behold, if you want to terminate a person, um, the termination laws in most countries outside of the U.S. is not at will employment. So you have to figure out a way to pay termination payment and things like that. So all those things, you know, I had lived with, and all of a sudden I found a company that made it easy for us to do that. You know, uh, we didn't have to worry about the legal barriers, you know, the re- regulatory barriers. We needed, uh, you know, what are the local government procedures? Oh, we have to register this guy here. Or we have to get online to do this other thing. And it, it just made a lot of sense. So I jumped at the opportunity. And that was about a decade, decade ago. Um, this company got bought out by another company. I ended up here at, at uh, CXE Global. Um, where we do basically the same thing. We have a few different twists of what we do. We also offer um, corp to corp. Uh, if somebody is a, is a legal contractor, has their own corporation, we're able to engage with them. Uh, we also do things, uh, a, a similar thing to the employer record, which is the agent of record, uh, which is uh, when you are providing part-time labor as, a, as an independent contractor, we're able to engage with them on that. And the other thing is we are able to do that in the U.S. as well. If for a company that, let's say, you're established in New York, in the state of New York, you want to hire somebody in the state of Colorado, but you're not registered there, um, we can hire the person in Colorado on your behalf. Yes, you could register, but then you have to file taxes there. You have There's differences in the, in, in the uh, more than anything else in the, in the local taxes or sometimes the city has a tax or things like that. So it makes it simple to engage workers everywhere. Um, and you don't have to outsource your entire pay- payroll. You can just do that what you want. And eventually if you want to set up, it's not a problem if you grow in there, it's easy to, to migrate the workers over. So I, I thought this was a great service to offer uh, to companies. And so it, it's, it's been fun doing this for the last 10 years. I really have enjoyed it. So there's about, plus or minus a few, about 200 countries in the world. Right. How many countries are you in where you would be the employer of record? We currently uh, are able to offer uh, in about 85 countries, which are the majority of the countries you want to do business with. In, uh, there's a lot of, uh, as you say, 200 countries, but a lot of, the, of them are like islands or some areas where you really don't have a need to uh, work internationally unless you had it for that particular country. There's there's small countries all over the place that do that. Um, so it's 
the other particular thing is uh, one of the good things about the company that I'm with, with CXC, is that we have about 30 offices around the world, which are our own office with our own people in country, which makes it simple for us to deal with those because we have the knowledge, the local knowledge. And we have local people working there. So if anything changes, we have it right there. So you do work in 85 countries, yet you have offices in 30 countries. So that extra 55 countries that you do business in, do you have to, I guess, well, one of them is Brazil, where you have to have an office. Right. In Brazil, we have our own office. But right. what happens is that you're able to register in some of those countries and have the business that we have. And you may manage those because of treaties in, in, different, in a different country. For example, in, in Latin America, we have the Mercosur, where we have our office in Brazil, who manages all the Mercosur countries, which are Argentina, Uruguay, Chile. Uh, Paraguay, Bolivia, Colombia, I think Peru, uh, it's an associate, and Ecuador is associate, the same as Venezuela, uh, although Venezuela is a special case nowadays. And so you're able to manage that from one office while you have the local knowledge. Mind you, all the laws are different, but um, there's things you can do that are very similar. At the same time, uh, in Europe, in the EU, you can do something similar like that too. Not everywhere. And now with Brexit, we have offices in the UK and offices in Ireland, offices in, in the other countries like Germany uh, to make it uh, office. By office, I mean we have our own, our own people in there, our own office, our own uh, registration. Yeah, I've heard a lot of companies have gotten stuck because they have they had their European operations headquartered in the UK mm -hmm. or Britain and right. then it no longer counts for the rest of mainland Europe. So they're either setting up in Ireland or they're having to go across to one of the other countries. Most people because of the language set up in Ireland, but you can, uh, the Netherlands has grown a lot in that sense yes. too. France, not as much, uh, but Spain and Portugal have grown particularly because their labor rates are a little bit lower than some of the other countries. So, but Ireland is the one that's really grown a lot thanks to Brexit. I think, I think uh, when it comes to Brexit, uh, Ireland was the biggest winner, if you think about it. <laughs> right, right. It makes sense. Still English speakers. Right. I mean, different English, mind you. I had Irish teachers growing up in Argentina, so I can make fun about the Irish <laughs> accent. <laughs> well, it is. I still laugh that uh, when I first went over to Europe, I had taken high school and um, I was taking some college classes for, for French. And I felt like I had an easier time in Paris understanding people. I got over to London and I couldn't understand people. You know, now that's changed. I, you know, I'm surrounded by accents. I love accents and I have a good, good aptitude for I, it now. I had, I had a good friend when I was working at TI in Europe. He was uh, an English guy who, um, he was a, a, of a Greek Cypriot uh, descendants. And, but he was, uh, very British. He spoke with a very Cockney accent. I could hardly understand anything. So I would ever, he would always pick me up at the airport. So I would say, hey, Lou, for the first 15 minutes, don't say anything important because I don't understand a word of what you're saying until my ear gets trained. <laughs> so it was so funny. So, I mean, he would make fun of me too, of course. But, All right. but, and I've, but it's true. Uh, the accents are different. The accents and then people who are bilingual too, if they're doing predominantly, like if you're, you live right. in Florida, if you're predominantly speaking English, I'm sure it takes a little bit to get it coming back if you go over to Argentina and go visit Argentina. Well, it's so funny because um, my, my wife is from El Salvador and um, over time, my Argentinian accent in Spanish has eroded. She says she has reformed me. Uh, <laughs> and... I don't speak with, I mean, Argentines have a very typical accent. Uruguayans is very similar. Uh, I go back to Argentina, and all of a sudden, it all comes back. Oh, right, so right. I, I call my wife on the phone, and she says, oh, I can tell you're in Buenos Aires. I can see your accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, little things like that are fun. Oh, uh, they sure are. All right, so you have, you know, you do work in countries all over the world. I'm real curious, if you had to say... 
which would be the hardest country to do business with regard to like labor laws and tax and salary and figuring out what do you think would be the hardest? Well, there's three countries that come to mind because there's a lot of um, services and taxes to pay. And at the same time, there are a lot of benefits for the worker. I would say um, France can be complicated. Brazil can be complicated. And the Netherlands can be very complicated. By complicated, I mean is you have to understand what you're doing in order to do it correctly. It's very difficult. Uh, if you hire somebody in France, you need to make sure you have all the things done properly because it could cost you a ton of money if you do it wrongly. The same with the Netherlands. Uh, the employer burden in the Netherlands can be very high. And by that, I mean taxes and benefits that you have to pay the worker. So one of the things I always tell people is when you're looking at hiring talent worldwide, don't think of a U.S. salary for that uh, function. Think of what's a local competitive salary. And uh, there's lots of research being done. Most of it's in the internet. So that gives you an idea of what the salaries would be because there's an employer burden, a tax that you will have to pay on top. We're, um, I remember in, in my days at, at Motorola and Texas Instruments, whenever we did the, the annual budget, we, how many, you know, this is your headcount, this is your average salary, and then, okay, I have 30% overhead. That covers everything else, or 35, whatever the number was. Um, internationally, it's very different. In some countries, you may have 80%. In other countries, you may have only 20%. Um, but you have to know what you're doing in there, especially if you're going uh, to do that you know, with a lot of people. That's why I think this employer of record solution is something that makes a lot of sense, because you don't have to worry about it. You tell us, hey, I want to pay this salary. This is what's going to cost you. Oh, that's too much. Okay, these are the benefits that they get. Um, if you pay this, this is your salary. Oh, that's more, more or less what I was looking for in my budget. So from an international expansion standpoint, all you worry is about the budget. You don't have to worry about anything else. This is my budget, and I can make things happen. And you, know, and you don't worry about headcount. You don't worry about a lot of things that we always like to worry in, in uh in American businesses. Right, right. Okay, so those are the hardest, and you just brought up some interesting questions. If you're an entrepreneur and you decide you want to expand internationally, how would you pick a country? How would you recommend picking a country? Well, there's, I think there's two ways. One of them is, is this, well, it depends on what you're going to be doing. Let's say you have a project. A project's usually country specific. So before you bid on the project, before you win it and are all happy and then look at what your real costs are, mm -hmm. uh, do some research up front. Uh, it, it make a business case for yourself for that country. See, see what it, you know, what, this is the profit I could make. And, if, and I always tell people, look at it the most expensive way, like you're sending an expat. Never mind, that's not that easy to get an expat. Uh, visa and stuff like that everywhere, but assume for a moment you're sending that so it'll be the most expensive one. And then uh, look at look at the numbers to see if what makes sense and doesn't make sense. Um, then the other thing is look at the talent. Uh, right now, a lot of people, I, IT talent is uh, developing a lot around the world. And people are looking for specific things like whether an iOS programmer or database programmer or Salesforce person, whatever it is, there's some countries that have this type of talent. Uh, for example, in countries like uh, in Asia or Africa, there's a lot of students that have gone overseas to study, but then they don't get the visa to stay home and they have to go back. So you have a lot of people that are very well trained and you can hire them in country uh, to do that. So the first thing is make your business case. Secondly, look at the talent that you're looking for. Of course, if you're looking for a salesperson or a project manager, you can find those just about in every country and just then different things come in there. But I assume for a moment that you already have won the project. So you need to look at how do I manage the project? How do I get this things going? Or, do, or I have a business, I have a, an international a client that wants uh, to buy my product, but I want, they want a local presence. They want a local support person to be there or an account manager. So those are the things you need to look at, look at first. And then the other thing is, what markets are you um, 
going to be expanding into. Let's say you want to sell in Europe. Well, you can have a salesperson or an account manager or a prog program manager in one country, Germany, Italy, France, wherever, Ireland, and then they can travel around the different areas. Never mind that right now we can't travel as much. That's a different right. story. But mm -hmm. in, in, in a soon-to-be world, let's hope again. <laughs> <laughs> Soon, <laughs> I hope. Yes. Uh, so, so that's the thing. The same in Latin America. Latin America is a little bit more different, a little different because you have Brazil who speaks Portuguese and you have the Spanish-speaking Latin America, which are all the rest. They all have their differences. And the distances can be significant. You can have a southern cone, somebody other, Argentina, Chile, or Uruguay that can work on that. I always tell people Brazil needs to be managed by itself uh, mm -hmm. for two reasons. One of them is if you have the person managing the whole region in Brazil, Brazil's so huge, they'll never pay attention to anything else besides Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, if you want to be in Brazil, you got to make sure you speak Portuguese. Yeah, you can get away. I get away with Spanish. I always say, eu falo portuñol, você portu eu <laughs> you know, I, I don't speak. I mean, I try to speak Portuguese and I understand it. And I can say quite a few words, have conversations. But when I try to speak in Portuguese, French comes to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I and, I, and I mess it up. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I speak Spanish and English, like uh, fluently. Mm. And uh, French, once I get... My when I go back to France or in a French-speaking country, when I travel in the Caribbean, after a little bit, I, I get back in the groove. Okay, um, yeah. And English, I speak it every day. And Spanish, I speak it every day. So, so that makes it easier. Italian, between my Spanish and my hands, I manage. <laughs> and and I, one thing I learned in Italy, never say anything in English. I'll pay twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I, I speak some Spanish. French and Italian and I was trying to speak to some people who spoke Portuguese and I just would throw the word out in whichever language it came to me and one of those would make sense in Portuguese. Right, so right. Uh, they're they're yeah. similar. Yeah, Portuguese is really old Spanish. It's really close to Galician. Uh, mm. The Spanish I speak in, in, in Galicia in the northern, in northern Spain and it's it's an interesting language, and but there's words that can really get you, so you have to be careful with some words. So I learned those words very quickly. Yes, and, yes. And then, well, then you have the difference between continental or Portuguese from Portugal. Right, right. Brazilian, because if we do a translation of Portuguese, we need to know which country or where the audience, because True. the written language is very different. Yeah, and, and even the the African countries who speak Portuguese are different. Yes. yes. And, uh, so, uh, you know, the Brazilians say there's more Brazilian people speaking Portuguese than Portuguese people in Portugal, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so they should conform to us and say, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they invented like, it's not Brazilian, it's Portuguese, you know, well, who cares? We'll change it to Brazilian, they say. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to get into the argument of which English should dominate. Oh, yeah, the same thing. True, true, <laughs> right. very true. Uh -huh. But I can usually tell where somebody learned to speak English because uh, they'll have a, a, you know, they might have a British or an Australian or an, uh, you know, North right. an accent from the United States. So uh, It's funny because I learned English with Irish teachers. I spoke Royal English when I moved here. And uh, now since I came here when I was 15, I finished high school here, and little by little, my English got more and more American as opposed yes. to, to very British, like it used to be. Oh, especially as a teenager. You're right. going to pick up what everybody else is doing. I still have an accent, though, I think. I have, my, my kids always tell me, Papa, you still have an accent. We, you haven't gotten rid of it. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about Europe and South uh, America. What about um, going into the Asian countries? I know there were some rules about China that people have to follow you had mentioned before. Yes. For example, in China, you cannot have an independent contractor. Everybody must be employed, whether they make you know, a lot of money or little money. They all, be, they all have to be employed. So they all get a uh, benefit, which is their health system mostly. The other thing is uh, Hong Kong has special rules. Of course, they're, they're trying to change those a lot. And there are things when you look at all of Asia, people 
in the U.S. tend to think of Asia as one. Mm. Uh, and Asia is very different. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, you know, if you start start with Korea, then you go a little bit south to Japan. They're very different. Then you go, of course, Hong Kong and Singapore, Malaysia. Um, you go down to the Philippines. India is a totally different continent, subcontinent. So, and they're all Asia. So people think of something homogeneous, and it's not. And one thing I learned at Samsung, which was very funny, because I tra I would travel to to Korea at least once or twice a year. And, you know, talking to them, I would say, well, how do you differentiate the people in there? So, well, you know, I see that guy, he's Vietnamese. I see that guy, he's Chinese. I see that guy, no, he's Korean. And that guy's Japanese. And I go, how can you tell? So, well, you know, the Koreans have higher cheeks. These guys have, you know, wider eyes. And after a while you notice and you go, wow, it's true. <laughs> but from where we're coming from, we don't realize it. Right, right, right. And, and their customs are totally different. Oh, yes. So tell me more about that. What have you observed? Well, uh, one of the things is, uh, well, in all in Asia, in Asia, they all have a lot of respect for the people and, and they're very formal in the way they do things. But one of the things that I noticed my first trip to Japan uh, when I was, I don't know, I had been in the, in the working world for just about five years. When you uh, present your business card, you uh, put your business card with both hands for them to be able to read it, and you look them by keep your eyes looking at them when you exchange the cards. In the U.S., we're so used to just you know passing cards around like they're you know playing cards, but in there that's a very important thing. In Korea, it's a little bit different. It's very similar in the way, but first you do is you bow. And, and you wait until the most senior person tells you to do, uh, to do the uh, card exchange. You're never the first one to do it. The most senior person has to do it. So the senior person would verbally say it's time to do, or they would no, be no, the first they, one to they pass? Would, they would be the first one to pass it. You, you're supposed to wait until the senior person. I mean, I was told when I get there, this is the, these are the rules. This is what you need to do. And uh, there, there's little things like, for example, when you go to uh, dinner with a uh, Korean person, one of their customs is that you never fill your glass. You know, they usually drink uh, some, you know, some spirit, but you never fill your own glass. Uh, so if the senior person fills your glass first, it's a great honor. So you're supposed to bow and say thank you and immediately offer that glass to him. And then he would fill another one for you. Uh, Little things like that that are so amazing and they're so much fun to watch. Right. And so how, do you, how did you learn these? Who was advising you on how to act in each country, act appropriately? Well, um, at first I learned just by observation. Uh, when I worked at Samsung, um, the way Samsung works is you, I had my Korean business partner I, I run the Latin America operation from Miami, but my Korean business partner, uh, basically I, could, I couldn't do anything without him agreeing. <laughs> so we were doing this together and he would always advise me those little things or those things on, that you need to do. Or um, for example, if, if uh, I went with, uh, with a US customer to Korea, we were meeting the head of the division, very important guy those who sat on the table were the customer and the Korean guys. If you were not Korean, you sat in the second row. Not that you were not that important because that was a show of respect to the visitors and to the management that the Korean guys would be there to, to do that. Of course, they could, they could ask me questions and of course I could never volunteer the questions. They had to add the, the, the big boy, the big, big boss had to ask me, but all this was advised by my business partner, partner up front. Say, so when we go to this meeting, there's where you're gonna sit. Don't say anything until they tell you. And you don't know how many times I had to bite my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> but he learned. I mean, you, you know better than to uh, blurt out. Right, right. Okay, so having your uh, an in-country business partner is really important. Now, when you're yeah. employee, employer of record, and you're working with an American company, do you kind of broker those relationships or is that a step removed from what you're doing? 
We worry more about the employment part. If they ask us for advice, we're happy to provide it. We always do. If they ask us, uh, for, I have clients, for example, that, are, that ask me, well, I'm looking at this country, that country, or that country. Which one is easier to do business in? I say, well, what are you going to be doing? What are you looking for? And uh, then I had one that's looking at hiring software talent in Europe. Uh, so they're asking, well, it's, it's the language very important for you. Well, yeah, I'd like for them to speak English because they have to work with our people in, in the U.S. Well, then look at Ireland or, of course, the U.K. is also a good place, except there's less mobility. Uh, there's some Eastern countries that speak good English, but not as good as the other ones. You need to do some of the testing. Um, so we do provide some of that advice in, uh, in, at the beginning, but most of the people that come to us uh, already know which countries they want to go into. Mm-hmm. And and what kind of talent they want to hire, and most of the time they really know the person they want to hire. Um, so, uh, but then they look at it and say, "Oh, gee, I'm not established there. Oh, I don't know anything about the the laws here. I don't know anything about the rules. How do I make that happen?" So, um, interesting. So they've already gone through the recruitment process. Not always. Not always, but sometimes. But sometimes, yeah, so they find somebody and all of a sudden they go, oh, man, how are we going to set up and yeah, be I mean, compliance? Yeah. Well, the, f- the first thing is, oh, we'll just wire the money. Uh, and, and then they go to the compliance officers, eh, can't do that. <laughs> oh, they're a 1099. We'll, we'll issue a 1099. Eh, that's a U.S. <laughs> thing. Uh, I mean, lots of people think that way. Of course, of course, because you think you just have an independent contractor yeah, and you but- pay them that way. But they have to go through a compliance check because not every country has the same rules for independent contractor. Like, for example, if, uh, if in most countries, if you go to their office or an office they provide to do the work, yeah. that constitutes dependency. If you provide equipment for them, that may also constitute equipment, I mean, a, a dependency, and therefore you're a full-time employee as opposed to an independent contractor. If you work uh, full-time, and you don't provide work for anybody else, that's a big flag too. Now, you can still work full-time, you can still uh, provide equipment. There's things that you can do uh, and able to be an independent contractor, but doesn't always uh, work that way. And the worst thing about it is, is that if you ever take into labor court, you will probably lose. Okay, so the VA market has become huge globally. We have a VA in Kenya. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, unusual. But, you know, we were looking in the Philippines, but came across somebody who knew somebody, and, and she's delightful and working out great. Mm-hmm. I never even thought about looking at those laws. I've fallen right into the trap that you're talking about. Well, the, the good thing is in Kenya is probably not a terrible country to do that because... Uh, they are more flexible in many ways, but those things change. As soon as a lot of people are working that way, uh, I mean, the government's losing um, a revenue, their tax revenue, and they're providing the services. They're maybe not a lot of services, but they're providing the services for which they collect taxes. And they may eventually say, oops, you know, uh, this is not in compliance. We need to do this. You need to pay all these other things. And, and you will have to or not do business there anymore. Okay. And so that even if she has other clients like she does. Well, okay. That, if she has other clients, that makes it a lot easier because then you can prove that he, they only do part-time work for you. Okay. So it's very similar to the United States if you're an independent contractor, if you have right. other clients in that country. But right. In right. China, you can't do that. You have to be a no. part-time employee. <laughs> they're, no, they don't even, you're, the, you're a full-time employee in China. You cannot be part-time employee or, or independent contractor. You can't have a part-time job in I'm, China? Sorry. Sorry. Yes, you can have, a, um, never mind. You, you can have, you can be a, a part-time employee a certain amount, but you still get the full benefit in the sense of, uh, uh, okay. in the sense of healthcare and all those other things. And you still have, you have to pay the, your portion, the employer portion for that benefit. Of course, you don't pay, if they only work 10 hours a week, you only pay for the 10 hours a week. Oh, okay. So you don't have to pay for the full benefit. It's it's prorated on how many hours right. the person. So they can work. Yeah, they can work. Time. 
Okay. Yeah, but they have to go through a check to make sure they are part-time workers. They provide either their students, um, like for example, uh, with universities, with some universities with, uh, with COVID-19, uh, they had a lot of graduate assistants and student workers that were coming to the U.S. and couldn't get the visa because they, they were not, or vaccines didn't exist. And uh, so they were doing everything via Zoom like or like we're doing it right now. Right. And, um, so we put a program where we could hire them in the country of origin and pay them uh, and paying the, all the taxes that were required while they did all their work remotely. And some of them were part-time workers, but the the employer burden was still there. Uh, was still on China. So we even... Yeah. Okay. We had to pay the employer burden in China. We had to pay the taxes. Whatever on earth we had to pay according to the laws, we paid it. And But we paid them on the behalf of the university because the university couldn't do it because they didn't have uh, a vehicle to pay that except from offshore. And that's not the way you pay, uh, you do employment. And then if they work there, who would, who did they work for? Uh, I mean, they can't work for a foreign corporation unless they're established in the country. Right. Okay. So that's why they had to come to you or, yeah. Or, or somebody else, right. Or and somebody like you, yeah. So, and India is similar in a way, um, although uh, wages in, in India are, are much cheaper because there's a lot of good talent in there. Right. There's, a, there's a lot of people that were educated in England or the U.S. that speak perfect English and know what they're doing so that's a lot of, of that in there um, places like thailand singapore are very good um, the philippines has a lot of good talent uh, both um, highly educated this uh, and there's others that speak english they do a lot of call centers from there for example right um, popular place for vas right right yeah so it's um it's an interesting world because the world is smaller, but there's laws that you have to follow. And with communication the way it is today, it makes it a lot easier. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've been the owner of Rapport International for 16 and a half years. And that was before the cloud and we were virtual. So the things that we had to jury rig together to make a virtual oh, yeah. office work, now it's so much quicker and, you know, yeah. ahead of the game when we shut down for COVID, it just, we didn't break a stride because this is our, our daily living. But it's interesting to see all the best practices come out now about culture and communication and how to do it. I'm like, yeah, well, when I started looking for that, you know, 16 years ago, there was nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there's things like, how do you run payrolls that are uh, in different countries? Uh, that's to your overhead. Uh, if you like, you know, you do translations and you may have a lot of part-time workers in, I don't know, 20 different countries, but you only have one of each. And okay, if it's this country, I got to pay that tax. In that country, I got to pay that tax. And it becomes a headache and it's doable. Right. But, uh, and I'm sure you get it done, but I'm not sure who your accountant is, but every time you hire in a different country, they probably hate you. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so do you, uh, do you run payroll then out of a global office or is it done independently at each country office? Uh, we do a mixture. Uh, we'd run payroll, uh, for example, in the U.S., we run it for all 50 states in the U.S., um, in, in, for example, in Europe, we run, run it mostly from the UK and Ireland, uh, UK for the, for the UK, obviously the four countries in the UK and Ireland for the rest of the EU. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, in, in Latin America, we have, uh, three offices, for example, we have Panama, um, Mexico and Brazil. And the good thing is from Panama, you can make payments just about anywhere, which makes it simpler. Mm -hmm. um, and you can also do it from Brazil and other places, but we run uh, the payroll uh, locally in the sense that we make sure that uh, we either engage a local payroll company just to run like an ADP like to run uh, just the, the printed checks or sometimes if it's only one person, we can do that ourselves. Oh, okay. Okay, and then are, are they all on automatic deposit or are countries vary depending whether you do checks, cash, auto deposit. Yeah, in, in most countries, it's automate, automated. Um, there's usually, if you send it from the U.S., it's a banking fee, of course. And there's mm -hmm. banking fees all over the place, but it's in most places automated. Um, right. 
I think there's hardly any any paper checks anymore. I, I, I was just looking at my bank statement. Uh, I had two checks cashed over the last three months because I had to write them. One was for the IRS. The other one was for, uh, I don't even remember, but it's, they asked for a physical check. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what's fun is, is we can't get all our clients to pay us over ACH, so we still take in checks. And then my son works for a company that doesn't do automatic deposit. They still do You're checks. Kidding. No, no. And they have a lot of part-time workers. It's a health club. A wow. fairly big one. Yeah. Wow, that's strange. Yes. They need, they need, a, they need a payroll system. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of domestic payroll systems that are very cheap and easy to work, but I guess they don't want it. <laughs> I, I do not know why. I don't know why. Interesting. But to deposit. And, and you have, uh, but AC, I can see some people wouldn't want to do ACH domestically uh, for whatever reason, but internationally, it's always wire transfer. That's been around forever. Right. Yeah, uh, we get wire transfer and PayPal's very yeah. popular. Yeah. And there's some other platforms that have come oh, yeah, up too. Yeah. But we've been using those for a year. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's switch over to a little bit of um, the personal questions okay. to get to know you a little bit better. First off, you know this question's coming because I prepped you. What's your favorite foreign word? My favorite foreign word, c'est la vie, which is a phrase. <laughs> C'est la vie. That's a good one. And and like my French uh, uh, boss would say, no, no, c'est pas la vie, c'est la guerre. <laughs> <laughs> no, but c'est la vie is something that I really like. It's, it's an expression more than just a... Yeah, because uh, that's, that's, I mean, that, it translates into that's life, but it is, it is what it is, and, mm -hmm. you know, well, that's how it I, goes. Or, or like the French say, up. <laughs> right. And your boss used to say, c'est la guerre, that's the war. It's the war. I know. I know. Yeah, c'est la guerre. Okay. La guerre. <laughs> All right. How about your favorite vacation? I think my favorite, well, I've had many vacations. I've been very lucky, but I think the favorite vacation that we've had is, uh, about six years ago as a family we went to Spain to uh, started in Barcelona, ended up in Granada by way of Madrid. And uh, with, with, with my wife, uh, my two children and my son-in-law. And we drove, which was nice. Of course, speaking the language is nice. Yeah. And just being able to stop in different places. And we had a, a set route, but we could detour and do different things. And, that was wonderful. Of course, you know, uh, uh, before I've had beautiful vacations in Argentina and Brazil and living in France, uh, every weekend was a vacation, which was very nice. Or uh, living in Nice, uh, you could go to Italy in about one hour. Right. And oh, there was uh, Piemonte or uh, Alba for the Tartufi Bianchi season. Oh. Uh, Amazing. Oh, you're killing me right now. During the COVID shutdown, my travel bug is just turned on right now. I don't know what clicked over the last yeah. week. but Well, one interesting thing, you talk about vacations. When we lived in Europe, of course, the Iron Curtain was still there. Yeah. And the only place you could get to was uh, Hungary in Budapest. So yeah. we drove from my father-in-law and my uh, sister-in-law and her husband came. So we got in our car, we drove through Italy, the Alps, Switzerland, all the way to Vienna. And in Vienna, we took a Russian-made hovercraft to Budapest. Oh, how fabulous. I know. My sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, and my father-in-law had El Salvadorian passports, not American passports. And when we get to, to the docking place, at that time, El Salvador and Hungary did not have diplomatic relations. So it was like uh, lots of, you know, but eventually they let us in. Of course, the only thing that was left was one taxi that was waiting for us. Thank goodness. But and they speak Hungarian. I don't know the first word of Hungarian, but it was wonderful vacation being in there. I mean, Budapest also, the best thing is one, it's one of the few Eastern cities that was not bombed during World War II. Right. Yeah. So, and it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And then you yeah. learn it was one of the capitals of the Austro-Hungarian Empire when, you had uh, uh, Maria Teresa the Aust uh, from Austria. You, know, you go through all these things and you go, wow, 
Yes. It's amazing. So that's another vacation. Uh, I can go on and on. <laughs> when I was there, I went to the Roman baths that are there. Oh, yeah. Down, and they were gorgeous and so much fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, all that area. I mean, go to the, see the Lippis Honors. I know that was in Vienna. Uh, but uh, in, in Budapest, the two bridges they have, the, yes. the, mm -hmm. the river, um, a lot of old churches. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, it was fabulous. What was your most rewarding cross-cultural experience? My most rewarding cross-cultural experience. I think this is funny because I think it would have to be my first trip to Brazil. Because even though people think they're all very similar, I was in the United States at the time. I hadn't been to Brazil from Argentina. Uh, it was a business trip with Texas Instrument. I went to um, Sao Paulo. And immediately, you know, in my mind, Brazil was something else. I, I thought of, of football, of soccer. Of, but I remember um, flying into Sao Paulo and the, where the plane goes under the clouds and as you're approaching the Guarulhos Airport, I mean, it's a, all these buildings. It's humongous. It's like they never end. And then you get in there and then it's a different culture altogether. I expected it to be like Buenos Aires and it wasn't. It was a totally different culture, which I which I really enjoyed. So I, what was it what was different about it? Was it I mean I get the feeling I've never been there. I get the feeling it's very lively and friendly and warm. And, it, yes, it's first of all it's very warm. So, well, that time I went at least. Uh, and it's uh, it's a lot of hustle and bustle and things like this that happen all the time and you're like uh, looking there and then you rush, rush to get out, and then you get stuck in the traffic uh, because I, I was going from Sao Paulo to um, a city outside Sao Paulo. I can't remember the name right now, uh, where my hotel was, and it took us two hours to get there because the traffic was stop and go. And uh, that's it. But there's other things. Um, when I was living in France, it was so funny. If you, you go from Nice, you get to... Uh, Menton, which is the last city in France, and then there says Ventimiglia. And you cross the bridge, and it's totally different. Different language, uh, different. I mean, in the French side, they're a little bit more, how should I say, um, uh, subdued. In, uh -huh. in the Italian side, it's like. <laughs> 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 and just across the bridge. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah. I, I remember going to San Remo and we went to a hotel, to a restaurant. We stopped by there and I, I was with a, we were with another couple. We get into the restaurant and, and we tell, we see that and say, oh, you don't take credit cards. No, we only have dollars and French francs. Don't worry about it. First you eat, then you pay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it, it was like we're so used to you know in France you tell them <laughs> right you have to be appropriate and the, yes yeah. yes but the Italian don't worry about it oh I love that so but just those little different cultures things I've been to so many different places it's difficult to pinpoint just one of them right right well it's interesting yeah. to me that you're you know you spent the first 15 years of your life in South America, but going to Brazil was one of the biggest culture shocks. I think right there it says don't lump all of Latin America together. That each true. country is very different. I was just writing a blog about that. So it's... Uh, oh, it's very true. Yeah. And every country has their own little things. Even within the countries, if you go to Ecuador, the people from Guayaquil are different than the people from Quito. They're different from right. the people from Esmeralda. Colombia, it's totally different too. Yeah, Cali, Medellin, uh, of course, Bogota. So uh, you really need to to be aware of those things. So, what final recommendations do you have for any listeners that are doing business cross border? Um, I think the first thing is that uh, business cross boarding is very rewarding is something that opens up different, not only different markets and different profit opportunities, but also it op opens up a brand new world where uh, you look at the world beyond what we see every day. Uh, in the US, we tend to be very insular, uh, where we think about our own thing in, in general. Again, I'm speaking generalities. 
So I think that we need to look at uh, how do I get around the world and do it, uh, you know, according to the, their laws and according to their culture. Make sure that you always take into consideration the culture. Um, uh, I talked about earlier about, you know, the uh, Asian culture sometimes with, uh, you know, Japan being one way or Korea being another. But it's the same thing in Europe. Uh, there's some things that you need to, if you're having a business dinner with an Italian, uh, don't tell them we don't have time. Let's not, let's skip the coffee and go somewhere else because they'll kill you. They'll never do business with you anymore. Uh, uh, so be aware of those things. Be aware of the minor things and don't get annoyed by those things. Embrace it. Just here's where I'm at. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to learn from them. Why? Because they've been doing it for a long time too. Just like when they come here, they don't understand how we work in many ways in mm -hmm. the U.S. They try to adapt as well. And if you don't like it, live with it. That's what I say. <laughs> oh, those are great last words. If you don't like it, just live with it. <laughs> well, you don't have much choice. <laughs> no, no, you don't. Thank you, Javier, for being with us today. You're welcome, Wendy. Uh, thank you so much for having me again. Okay, and to listeners, thank you for listening. I've gotten such a kick out of listening to all the different stories from the countries that it's been to. Uh, I certainly learned. So I hope you learned, and I hope you would uh, tell somebody about this podcast who might enjoy it, either somebody who's traveled internationally, does international business, or might be interested in expanding internationally. Um, where can people reach you, Javier? I forgot okay. to ask that before sure. I started closing. Yeah. Well, my email is Javier, J-A-V-I-E-R, Romeu, R-O-M-E-U, dot Romeu, at cxcglobal.com. Okay, thank you. And, and are you in, on any social yeah, media? LinkedIn? I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, and um, that's the only one I'm in. <laughs> and, okay. And, and my, I'll give you my phone number, too. It's, of course, plus one, nine, five, four. Six five five seven nine six two. Great, thank you so much. Thank so you. share share this information with somebody that would be interested in doing international business. He's a wealth of knowledge, uh, and so we'll see you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now. <laughs>